Well, welcome to the NETS training, uh, session three. If you'd take your Bibles, please, and turn into uh, them to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now tonight I want to talk to you, begin by talking about the renewed mind. And the renewed mind is for every Christian the key to transformation. And as we renew our minds and put that engrafted word into our minds, God transforms us. We must put on the word and he guarantees that he will transform us. Now in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 20, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It says you, you put off concerning the former conduct. You do it, and then you will be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you put on the new man, which is created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. There's an effort going to be necessary on your part in order to be transformed. The effort is not that you expend your energy to transform yourself, but that you expend your energy to renew your mind. You put off the old, you put on the new, and God will transform. It's a choice you must make. It's been my experience that men and women who come out of uh, deep darkness, whether it be lust or whether it be the occult, whether it be many addictions, there will be no lasting change simply by receiving the Spirit unless they are willing to expend the effort to renew their minds. There are times when people are changed to the point that it's easy for them to renew their mind, and so the transformation occurs quickly. Nevertheless, after coming out of the old, we must put on the new, and that takes effort. And that takes the willingness on our part to renew our mind, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, which means we have to put on the mind of Christ. We have to receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls, which is our minds. And then we will be transformed. If we're struggling, the key to transformation is the renewing of our mind. Now, sometimes there, there are stumbling blocks. Sometimes there are spiritual things that are blocks to allowing our minds to be renewed. And those things can be removed by the Spirit of God. But once they are removed, we still must then renew our mind or they'll come right back. We must change our thinking. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Without faith, we cannot please God. That's for anyone. When we first come to God, it's by confessing Jesus as Lord and believing that God raised Him from the dead. So our faith, our belief that God raised Him from the dead brought us to a place where God could meet us. And we were saved by our faith. 
The grace of God saved us, and the faith, our faith put us in a position where we could receive that grace and that gift of salvation. And that was the first time, really, that we pleased God, was when we received His Son as our Savior. But so it is in the rest of our Christian walk. It's our faith that puts us in a position of pleasing God. Faith without works is dead, of course. Faith without works means nothing. So the renewing of your mind without expending some effort means nothing. There will be no change. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This is why it's so important for us to hear the Word of God, whether it be by a preacher, whether it be by our own mouth as we continue to speak it, whether it be in the course of our daily lives that we speak the Word of God so that we hear the Word, so that we put on the mind of Christ. The words are powerful. Faith comes and increases by hearing. It's one of the ways by which faith is increased. Hebrews 11, 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that we don't see. Faith is the substance of things that we hope for. Faith is the makeup of that which we're looking forward to receiving. Hope is a vision. Hope is that which you hold in your mind or in your heart or even what you draw, can draw out. It's what you ha don't hold presently but want to. You draw it out. Maybe a blueprint for a building you want to have. Maybe the blueprint for your life. You may have goals that you've set. But that's your hope. That's your vision. So your faith will be made up of what you're hoping for. If you have no hope, your faith will be minor. You have great hope, great vision. Your faith will rise up. Now, if hope is a vision, if we can paint the picture for people, their faith will rise. They, the more clearly they can see it. I believe this is one reason why Jesus spoke in parables. He gave parables to people, basically told them stories in such a way that it would paint a picture for them. That they could actually see what he was teaching them. So he would teach them and whether they took notes or not, they would be able to picture it later. They would remember it because they would remember this, the, uh, the lesson learned because the, the vision that they received, which was a hope for them if they kept it in their heart. For those that had that vision and kept that hope, then they would begin to have faith. It would begin to change their lives as they began to uh, adapt their lives to what they learned. As they renewed their mind... To what they learned, they would be transformed. They would be changed. Now, I want to look at some of how Jesus taught here. And in light of it, I want you to understand a little bit more about how the Word of God interprets itself. Because we know that Scripture was given by the inspiration of God. It can't contradict itself. And it also will explain itself by, its, by the principles laid out in the Word of God. So as we allow the Word of God to interpret itself, we'll, we'll understand more clearly. One of the main principles to biblical interpretation is that the Word of God many times will interpret itself right in the verse. And the four ways or subtitles under interpretation in the verse are these. Right where it's written. Understanding that words or a word must be interpreted according to the proper biblical usage. In other words, you must understand the word in, in a meaning in, in light of how it was written, not necessarily in how it would mean today. 
for instance, to wait upon the Lord. To us, generally, to wait means to, to sit and not move and not go anywhere. And that is one of the, the meanings, but it can also mean, biblically, to serve as a waiter or a waitress. So when it says, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall run and not be weary. Obviously, it can't be saying that they'll sit and do nothing. It's in a different context. Those that, in that verse, that wait upon the Lord are actually active. So we must understand the words in light of their biblical meaning, not necessarily in light of our own meanings. The words must be in agreement with the verse that they're in, as well as with all other scripture relating to that subject. And then there is narrative development or scriptural progression. Now, we're going to look at right now how the Word of God interprets itself in the context. Remember, a text without a context is a pretext. So if you'll turn to Mark chapter 4 and verse 2. And he taught them with many things by parables. And he said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. And some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, some one hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. Now, can you just see the picture as he's, t he's describing this parable? The seed going out into the ground. And you can even picture those thorns coming up and just grabbing that little plant by the throat, so to speak, and just choking it. Or you can see the sun coming up from the horizon. And then as it reaches its zenith, coming, you know, just the heat coming down and that little plant just withering away. So you can picture these things. And Jesus was teaching these things to, to those that, uh, in a very agricultural nation anyway, and culture. And they could picture all this, and yet he was teaching deeper truths. But even though they could picture it, they didn't understand the deeper meaning. And his disciples came to him, and they asked him, what does it mean? Now we could ask ourselves, what do we think it means? And we might have a good learning from it. But more importantly, when it comes to Scripture, we want to know what does the Scripture say it means. And if it doesn't tell us, we don't know. But if it doesn't tell us right there, it may tell us in another place. And the reason I chose to read this to you from this passage is because in two more verses, it'll tell you what it means. Because they went to the Word, Jesus, and asked Him for the interpretation. We likewise should go to the Word and find out the interpretation. Well, here in verse 13, he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, he was telling them, This is a key to understanding all parables. So if we will understand how he interprets this parable, we can use the same principles for some of his other parables. We can look into what they mean and how he's teaching about the kingdom of God. So we can learn deeper truths. Well, he said, The sower sows the word. So the seed is the Word. 
These are the ones by the wayside where the word was sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown into their hearts. That doesn't mean the devil himself, but his kingdom, his effects or his demons. But something of Satan's kingdom comes and steals. He came to steal, to kill, and destroy. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. The Bible says that, that Satan is the God of this world to whom he's blinded. He'll come and he'll stop their ears up so they don't even hear. We've seen that when you're speaking the word of God to someone and it just seems like it's bouncing right off them. You can talk about any other subject and they're receiving it like a sponge, but then when that word comes, it doesn't get through. Well, we can pray and break through that just like you can plow ground. You can pray and command the, the effects to be removed so that that person can receive. You can't make the choice for them, but at least then it's not bouncing off. But at any rate, this is the first category, the wayside. They hear it, but immediately it's taken away from them, and they do not believe, you see. So in this first category, the Word of God comes, but they do not believe it. Now the second category, in verse 16, These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with gladness. Now these... It says received it. The first ones never did get it. See, as soon as it was sown, it was taken away immediately. Now, but these received it with gladness. But they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. In this situation, these people receive with gladness. They're happy to hear it. But a little persecution, a little pressure... And they turn away. In other words, the pressures of life cause them to leave the word. One way that we keep the pressures from pressuring us off our path is to renew our mind. Pressures will come, just like thorns will grow in a garden. However, if we will renew our mind and put on the mind of Christ, then we will be stronger than those weeds and will be able to stand. Now, these are the ones sown among the thorns. They're the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and they become unfruitful. Now, this is a group of people who receive also, but the pleasures of life come in and choke that word from them. Once again, by the renewing of our mind, we cannot be drawn away after the lusts of the flesh, after the good things that may tempt us, but are not eternal. So you had the one category who didn't believe at all, one category who were offended because of the pleasures that come from the Christian walk, and others that were offended because of the pressures that come from walking the life that Christ would have us to walk. But then, these are the ones sown on the good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. These then are fruitful. They received it, and they became fruitful. So, hence, the goal for each of us as a Christian, a good piece of good ground that has received the word, received that seed, is to be good ground that is a husband of that seed, allowing it to grow, not allowing it to be scorched, not allowing it to be choked, not allowing it to be taken out of the good ground onto a rock. 
but to rather grow and then produce fruit. How are we going to produce fruit? Just like that little plant has to keep growing. He has to be faithful to grow. We have to likewise be faithful. And the key to stewardship is faithfulness. Uh, Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being a priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they rejected knowledge. It wasn't the knowledge of the world that they were rejecting and it wasn't the knowledge of the world they were lacking. It was his people lacking a knowledge of his word. And because of that, they were destroyed. Because of that, the pleasures and the pressures got to them and they were offended and they were taken off course and they had no fruit. Remember of those four categories Jesus spoke of, three of them believed. Only one had it taken before he believed. The other three actually believed. Two then were taken away, one for pleasure, one for pressure. But only one had fruit. And that one that had fruit brought more into the kingdom than all those that had fallen away. Just the fruit was abundant. So if the knowledge, the lack of knowledge destroys, then the presence of knowledge obviously will bring fruitfulness and prosperity. Proverbs 2 Beginning of verse 1, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Receive his words. Seek after his words. Understand and you decide that you're going to look for his word as one that would search for silver. As you would go after prosperity that you could hold in your hand. That you could purchase the things in life that you would want. To seek his word for those things. With that attitude... Because the word of God is greater than all the gold. What it contains, the fear of the Lord, is contained in there. The, the path of life is contained in there. The way of salvation is contained in there. If we'll press in and seek with that attitude to receive his words, to receive the engrafted word with meekness, then we will find the knowledge of God. And we will not be destroyed, we will not be distracted, but rather we will be determined to be raised up We'll be discipled. We'll be disciplined. And the Lord will transform us and transform our lives and mold us into the image of His dear Son. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Only fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord. What we've read just now is talking about an attitude to search in these scriptures as one that searches for silver as one that searches for wealth. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, there's a lot of people in the world that have much wisdom, but it's world wisdom. They may not fear God at all. But that wisdom, which leads us to true prosperity, which will lead us to the way, which will lead us to salvation, which will lead us to God, 
That wisdom begins with a fear of God. Well, in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, it says, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around when he saw her and said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. She'd been sick 12 years. Nothing could help her. And yet she said within herself, If I could just touch him. That thought, those words that she said within herself, led her into the presence of the Lord. She touched the hem of his garment. She probably knew the scripture in Malachi that says that when the Savior would come, that there would be healing in his wings. And that word wings is the hem of the garment. And she may well have known that. And she said, if I can just go and touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. And she did. And it happened to be the Son of God who was the anointed one. And when she came into that place, she was healed. And he said to her, it was her faith that made her well. What did her faith do? All it did was bring her to the healer. And what she did was she acted out on the scripture, which was taught in every synagogue, that there'd be healing in the hem, in the, in the wings of the Savior when he came. She received the benefit of understanding scripture, but practically applying it so she could receive the results. Not a head knowledge only, but she acted on it. Remember, without faith, it's impossible to please him. But she was commended. Not only was she made well, but she was commended of the Lord because she had faith. Psalm 103, 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquities and who heals your diseases. Perhaps she understood these scriptures. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. The writer of this was speaking to himself. He was talking to himself. He was instructing himself, commanding himself to bless the Lord. Soul is self. Bless the Lord, myself. <laughs> he was renewing his mind. He was commanding not only his mind, but he was commanding his body too. And all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh myself. And don't forget. What's he doing now? He's speaking to his mind. Don't forget his benefits. There's so many. I don't think any of us could remember all of them at any one time. But thankfully it doesn't say to remember them all at one time. It just says, don't forget them all at one time. <laughs> Keep them before you. By the renewing of your mind, keep them before you, in your mind, remembering what he's done and what he is doing. Who forgives your iniquities and who heals your diseases. Many times when a sick person was brought to Jesus, he would say, your sins are forgiven. And at that declaration, their physical healing was brought to them. By faith, we receive forgiveness. By faith, we receive healing. Now there's times, as in Matthew 13, in verse 58, where Jesus, even though he'd done many, many mighty miracles, 
He would come to a place where it says he did not many mighty works because of their unbelief. Jesus was the same, but what was different was their belief in him. Unlike the woman, they didn't believe. They got sidetracked from one reason or another. Satan came and stole the word before it could be planted. And so therefore, even Jesus could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. He did some, obviously, with those that had some faith. But not many. Now remember in James 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I have been tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. How are we going to stay out of sin? It says here that desire brings you in. Temptation comes, but it's your desire that allows you to go into that temptation. And it's your desire that allows sin to be conceived and give birth and to bring death. But we have a choice. We can believe. We can have faith that we can not be tempted with evil to the point that we sin. Temptation is not a sin. To give in to temptation is a sin. By the renewing of our mind, by controlling our thoughts, we take control of our desires. We put off the old man, and we choose to put on the new. Now, prayer can help, but prayer alone won't do it. It says you have to do it, not pray for it to be done. To pray for assistance is honorable, but remember, it's your mind. You have to do it. Just like the psalmist said, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me. Forget not all his benefits. He was telling himself. He was telling himself. He was renewing his mind. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Does the word hold you? It can't hold you unless you hold it. If you'll put it on in your heart, then it will hold you. And it will carry you through the rough times. It will carry you through the pressures. And it will carry you through the temptations for pleasure. Does the word hold you? Have you hidden the word of God in your heart? Do you know the word? And have you put it on? Have you renewed your mind and put on the mind of Christ? If you have, then you might not sin against him. If you'll put the word on in your heart, then you'll have the answer to the temptation when it comes. And you won't be led astray. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, but he's not the only Son of God. He's the only begotten of the Father, but he's not the only child of God. Because of Jesus, we now are called sons of God. He is rather now, the firstborn of many brethren. We, being children of God, should imitate Christ, should put on his mind, 
She'd follow his example. When Jesus was tempted of the devil, he told the devil at each temptation, it is written. At each time he was tempted, he had scripture that he could use that would apply to that situation. And in each time, that scripture, that which was written, gave him the door, which was the release from that temptation. So he did not sin. To understand what is written is to follow Christ's example and to be strengthened with his strength. To have his strength in our inner man. To renew our mind is to put the word of God in our minds and make a choice, an effort to walk in that. Sometimes it's not so easy. But there are greater rewards for those that will press anyway and overcome. It may not be easy. It was never intended to be easy. Because adversity gives us strength. Even as it does to our physical legs as we walk up a hill or as we continue to exercise our legs, they're going to build up strength. Well, same thing in our lives. As we come against adversity, when we seek the Lord, look into his understanding and his knowledge. Then as we come to each and every obstacle, we become an overcomer eventually. Sometimes with perseverance, but nevertheless, when we become an overcomer, what, what, what have we done? But we have walked in faith. We have walked out in faith on what we've put on in our minds. And thereby we have been pleasing to God. When it even looked like it was impossible. Because it is possible to do the impossible with the God who made it possible. And he's given unto us great and precious promises. If we will search for them. If we'll look for them as one that searches for great spoil. As one that searches for silver, for gold, for wealth. Only we're seeking for an eternal crown. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Now destination simply is a place that we're going. Simple definition. A destination is where you're going to be. So predestined means something was prepared for you ahead of time. You have a destination that was prepared for you ahead of time. So we have been predestined. In other words, there's a place prepared for us as we are conformed to the image of His Son. Blessings are already prepared and waiting for us as we conform to the image of the Son. They're waiting for us to go and receive them. Do you want them? I know I do. Now, still in light of how the Word of God interprets itself, you need to understand something about the translations. One reason why I like to use the New King James and the King James for this purpose is that they have italicized words in them. Now, an italicized word signifies a word that was added by the translator that was not in the original. Now we're reading in Romans chapter 8, in verse 30 it says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There may be adversity in front of us, 
But if God's for us, that adversity will come to nothing if we'll continue to persevere, if we'll continue to press on, if we'll continue to put on his word, if we'll continue to have his word hidden in our hearts. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The most precious thing that God had was his son, and he did not hold back his life. Even for you and for I, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, even when we were against God, he gave his son, and his son willingly gave up his life so that we could have access to the Father. Well, now that we're his children, will he withhold any good thing? Of course not. With the Son, He'll give us all good things. But all good things come through the Son. Now who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, it reads. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted for, as sheep for the slaughter. A quote from 1 Chronicles 28.9. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, he says, who can hold anything against us? Who can lay a charge against us? Who can go into the court of God who gave his son for you and then lay a charge against you and can say, you're not worthy to have what Jesus Christ made available for you? Who can do that? And then it says, who can do that? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? It is Christ who died. But what I want you to see is those two English words, it is, are in italics, which means they have no Greek word in the original to correspond with them. So in light of interpreting Scripture, any italicized word that you see in there has been added by man, was not originally inspired of the Holy Spirit. And if it was not originally inspired by the Holy Spirit, then you can then leave it out and not have touched the word of God. Let me give you an example. In verse 35, the word shall is in italics. Now in this case, it's added properly for understanding. But let's read it. First with and then without. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? A question. But let's read it without the shall. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? So you can have the shell in there, and it will help, but if you take it out, it doesn't change the meaning at all, does it? Well, let's go back up to verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now that definitely has a message, doesn't it? Now let's read it without the italics. Who shall bring a charge to God's elect? God who justifies? Means something totally different, doesn't it? When you take those italics out, then it says to you, who is going to bring a charge against you? The one that justified you? 
He already justified you. Why would he now condemn you? It means the totally opposite if we take those italicized words out. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Now let's take out those italics. Who is he who condemns? Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who makes intercession for you? He's making intercession for you. He died for you. God raised him from the dead. He prays for you daily. Now is he going to condemn you? Of course not. Do you see how the meaning was changed by adding those two simple words? Probably with good intentions. Now there are times when italics are put in there and they help us. But if we're going to be scholars and we're going to understand scripture, if we're going to seek what is God speaking to us, what is the message that the Logos is speaking to us, then we as workmen need to be able to take out that which has been added and see if it has changed the meaning. And in this case, I believe it changes the meaning. We need to understand God is for us. And if God Almighty, who justified us, won't condemn us, if Jesus Christ, who died for us and now intercedes for us, won't condemn us, then why would we let anyone else condemn us? Why would we think that anyone who is condemning us would have any say with God, who justified us, to free us from that weight of fear of being rejected by God, whom we desire to serve, whom we are seeking after? Yet in all these things, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, those last three verses that we just read, nothing can separate us, he said. And yet he wouldn't have just written that God could separate us or Jesus could separate us. But by taking those italics out, is God going to condemn you? Is God going to bring a charge against you before Jesus? Is Jesus going to bring a charge against you before God? No. Is Jesus going to say, I'm not letting you come in today? Is God going to say, I don't want to see that son of mine and separate you from the love of God? He says right here in the context, he's persuaded that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, then God or Christ Jesus can't be in the category of that which would separate us. Because the love is there in them. They justified us. Jesus intercedes for us. He gave his life and continually gives his life for us. He's not going to keep us away. Nothing can keep us away that are listed in these categories. Not death or life or angels or principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing. None of these things can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there's one thing that's not listed there. And we'll bring that up in a little while. But for now, I'd like you to go to Philippians chapter 3. And in verse 13. The apostle wrote, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing I do. 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, those that are perfected, put on this mind. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal this even to you. He says, put on this mind. What mind? A mind that will look forward and reach forward to the things that are ahead of God and forget the things which are behind. What is not listed in Romans 8? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. What's not listed is things in the past. Because your past will separate you from God if you spend your time there. If you will not renew your mind and put on the word of God and accept his forgiveness for the past, you will separate yourself. You will be separated from God. That's why the apostle said to press on to those things which are ahead and don't look back. Reach forward. Does that mean we can't learn from the past? Of course not. We should learn from the past. But we can't dwell in the past. And we can't keep bringing up the past. The, the devil will bring up your past just for the purpose of condemnation. Just for the purpose of making you think that you're not worthy and can't receive the blessings of God. Well, I got news for you. No one is worthy except the Lord Jesus. And our worth comes through him. And our blessings come through him. So when we have our identity in him and we press on to the high calling that there is in Christ Jesus and we're not looking back, then we will not be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you're separated, it's so much easier for him to lead you off into temptation. It's so much more difficult for him to draw you away when you're on right terms with God. If he begins to draw you away, then you're getting out of relationship with God. But having gotten out of relationship with God, now is there anything that can separate you from God? If you'll confess your sin, he will receive you back. And if you're wanting to be perfect, you're not going to do it again. But you're going to press on. And you're going to forget those things which are behind. Not to forget what's happened and deny that it has ever happened. Not that at all. True repentance will admit what you've done wrong and turn from it. But to forget it in light of judgment, in light of condemnation, your slate is wiped clean again. Now maybe it's not with the police. <laughs> maybe it's not down here on earth. And you may have to pay a price depending on what it is that you have done in your past. But in God's eyes, forgiveness is there and you can get up and you can press on. And you can not allow that which has occurred to separate you. But to come back into his presence, into his love, under the shadow of his wings. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter 27... It says, And when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate. 
the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and he went and hanged himself. Now we need to understand, in order to interpret scripture, we need to understand words and how they were used in biblical time. Not in light of the way we perceive those words. The Bible is an Eastern book, written about an Eastern culture, written in another time to another people. For our understanding, for us to learn, so that we can know our Lord, so that we can know how to believe, so we know what to believe. If we truly want to know the word, then we have to understand it in light of how it was written and understand the words that were originally written. And I want to look at this record of Judas and how it says he went out and hanged himself. Because in our minds in the West, when we think of a hanging, we generally think of the old Westerns and a hanging tree or a gallows and a rope with 13 wraps on that rope, the hangman's knot. And Judas went out and hung himself. But if we want to understand scripture, we need to understand it in light of how it was originally written. So let's look at some of the different ways hangings occurred in scripture, in their, their culture. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 4, you have the record of the king Saul when he saw his army being defeated by the Philistines. He said to his armor bearer, he's wounded. He knows he's going to die. He doesn't want to be tortured. So he says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and he fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Now, when they fell on their sword, in that culture they would have called that a hanging. They hung themselves on their sword. We would say they impaled themselves on their sword as opposed to being hung with a rope. But we need to understand our differences of the way we speak and the way they would speak. In 2 Samuel 21, verse 9, And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, this is David, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now here were seven men that were executed. It says they were hung on a hill. But then it says they, they fell together. How did they fall? And how were they hung? It's not very clear in this verse. But when we would say someone was hung with a rope, we wouldn't say they fell. As Saul fell on his sword and was hung on that steel. Now, they did hang with ropes. In Esther chapter 2, verse 23, you had the enemy of the Jews... Haman, it says, And an inquiry was made into the matter, and it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So in this situation, they didn't take them up to a hill and hang them, and they fell, but rather they took them to a gallows and hung them with a rope, as we would think. 
In both cases, however, it was called a hanging. It was described as a hanging. Look in Deuteronomy 23, in verse 22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now, of course, Jesus became accursed because he was hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 speaks of this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, Jesus hung on a tree. The Hebrew word for a tree and the Hebrew word for a piece of wood from a tree is the same word. So to say or to translate he was hanging on a tree is to translate that he was hung on something made out of wood, a cross. But how was he hung? With a rope? With a noose? No, he was impaled. He was spiked with nails on that tree. And yet they still in that culture called that a hanging. And he was accursed because he was hung on a tree. Not hung by his hair like Absalom was, but hung by nails. But to their culture, there were many different ways to hang. From a sword, to a nail, to a rope. How was Judas hung? In Luke 23, 39, And one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. How was that criminal hung? With nails, also, on a cross. In Ezekiel 15, 3, it says, Is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can man make a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? He's talking about, in Ezekiel, taking a piece of wood and making a peg which you would then hang a, like a cup on. Now, we would use a term like that. Let's go hang the pot on the peg. Let's go hang our coat on the rack. Let's go hang our uh, shirt on that peg in the wall. So here you have a peg, and you're, in a similar fashion, impaling something on it, and they call that hanging. Well, we do too. Just like Saul hung himself on that sword. Now, how did Judas hang himself? Let's read in Acts chapter 1. It gives more of a description of how he hung himself. And in verse 18, Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Now I remember when I was a child watching a movie about the passion of Jesus, and I saw Judas went and hung a, a gallows on a tree that overhung a, a cliff and he hung himself and after he died the tree broke and he fell into the into the valley and that's how this happened but that isn't how this happened <laughs> how did that what is described there happen he fell headlong and burst asunder in the midst and his bowels gushed out that is describing his method of executing himself his method of suicide was to hang himself and impale himself now, Saul used a sword because he was a military man. His armor bearer used a sword because he was a military man. Judas was not a military man. While he may have been a zealot, perhaps he used a sword. The, the disciples had swords. But also in that culture, 
A stake could be used, just like we read about the peg that you would hang a vessel on. Judas, once he realized what he had done, threw the silver that he had gone after to receive, that he was willing to, to betray innocent blood for. 30 pieces of silver, which legally was the least amount someone could pay for a slave. He was willing to receive for Jesus Christ the smallest legal fee available to purchase a slave. For that, he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. The pearl of great price. But God gave his only begotten son, the most precious thing to him. And through his son, we have salvation available to us. The worth of something is based upon what someone will pay for it. When you have something that you care to make available on the free market, you set the price. And no matter what price you set for it, what, what price you may think it's worth, that price then becomes set. The worth of it becomes set then by what someone pays for it. You may have an item that you thought wasn't worth much. Let's say a piece of artwork that you found in an attic and you thought it wasn't worth very much. But you brought it to the auction and someone else saw that and they recognized the signature of the artist. And they may have paid ten times more than you thought it was worth and yet they still went away happy. On the other hand, you may have an item that you've invested your whole life into it but then no one else appreciates it and they won't give you a nickel for it. In this case, you have... Judas, who betrayed innocent blood, betrayed the second Adam, the new man, the perfect man, the Redeemer, the Son of God from heaven, the one that never sinned, for the minimum price that he could get. Yet our God, who gave his Son, recognizing that he was to be the firstborn of many brethren, understood that when he gave salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he had to set a price that would be the most that he could set, and yet people could still afford it. And yet there was no price that could be set that any of us could afford. So therefore, rather than set the price and then belittle Jesus' accomplishments, because as much as he could set it, it would still be too low. So what he did was he said, this son of mine is priceless. So the only way that you can receive from him and me not belittle his worth is for me to give salvation to you through him. So therefore, the worth of Jesus is retained for all eternity. We can afford it because we can receive it. We cannot purchase it. It has been purchased for us. All we have to do is receive that pearl of great price. But this man, the betrayer, threw those 30 pieces of silver and went out and hanged himself. And his bowels gushed out. A very horrible end to a very pitiful existence. But when we understand the words in the verses according to their biblical meaning, then we have a true and accurate picture of what the scripture says to us. You may say, well, what does it matter? But it matters a great deal when it comes to understanding the word of God. 
Because if we can search out the scriptures on something as simple as the method with which Judas hung himself, then we will be showing ourselves approved unto God to find the deeper hidden truths that truly can set a course for us to bring us into greater truths. Because if we'll be faithful in the least, then he can show us to be faithful in the much. He can bring us into greater understanding and greater knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. If we truly believe that the Word of God was inspired for our learning, then every bit of the Word of God is important. And we've got to begin to understand Scripture at a basic level. If we will take these principles that I'm teaching you and apply them to other parts of Scripture, I guarantee you will find many greater things than this. Now let's look at another point to how the Word of God interprets itself. And this is scriptural progression. We need to understand, in light of scriptural progression, that the timing of events listed in Scripture are important for our understanding. Now in Genesis 3.15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, he made that promise to the woman and to the serpent. She's going to have a seed, you're going to have a seed. Her seed is going to crush your head. This is a promise. And from this point in Scripture on, all the way through the rest of Scripture, that promised seed, who is Jesus, is the purpose of Scripture. Now, what was the timing of that promised seed coming? Now, Eve thought that he was coming very soon. In chapter 4 of Genesis, in verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired the man from the Lord. But she hadn't acquired the man from the Lord. Now, she understood the promise of God, but she was wrong in the timing of God. There was more time between the promise of the seed and the performance of the promise than Eve had expected. We also must not place time or remove time at our will from Scripture. Now, back, let's read again in, in Matthew 27 about Judas. Verse 3, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now my question is, in light of timing of Scripture, when did Judas hang himself? It says here, he threw the pieces of silver and he went and hanged himself. It also says that the promised seed was coming and then she got pregnant. But the promised seed was 4,000 years in coming. We know that what's listed here in Matthew 27 is accurate. That these events happen like it says. They happen in the order that it says. But what was the timing it says, then he threw down the pieces of silver and he departed and he went and he hanged himself. And so when we come back next time, we're going to look at the timing of when Judas hung himself. Amen.